Good morning, SBC. It's good to have you here this morning. We continue our series, All the Feels. We are examining particular emotions. And one of the things that we've been saying is that while it is good to feel better in our lives when we're not feeling well, there's something even greater than feeling better, and that is getting better at feeling. Getting better at feeling is actually greater than feeling better. In fact, that's one of the ways that we do feel better. It's giving ourselves permission to feel the things that we are feeling and to get curious about what the things that we're feeling are connected to. It's about increasing our capacity to feel, allowing ourselves to feel ways that even make us uncomfortable and realizing that that is actually okay. It actually grows our capacity. It makes us stronger. We've also been saying that feelings are messengers. They're good things, but they're not the message. They are messengers. They're messengers intended to inform and influence us. They're not the messages meant to define or determine reality for us. We get that confused. We can get really confused. Feelings matter, but they are the messengers. They are trying to inform us. They're trying to show us that something needs our attention. We are not to surrender to our feelings. We were never supposed to. But also, feelings are important. It's okay to feel. In fact, sometimes it's even good to feel. And I know that we're in a Baptist church, right? And so that can be dangerous, right? Me saying that. But it is good. It's good to feel things. The question is, what do we do? What do we do with our emotions? Some of you are familiar with uh, the artist uh, NF. That's his stage name. His real name is Nate Firestein. And he's from Michigan. He doesn't identify as a Christian rapper, but he is a rapper that, that, is, that does happen to be a Christian. He's from Gladwin, Michigan. Um, he has a very powerful story. His parents went through a really ugly divorce. He went to live with his mom growing up. Um, things were really toxic in his home. He was abused by one of mom's boyfriends, then went to live with his dad. And then while he was living with his dad, his mom overdosed and then passed away around 2009. And then he got into the industry, he started writing music, and he created this song, and the title of the album is Therapy Session in 2016, which is fitting. And let's just take a look at a couple of the lyrics here. This is a song about his mom. He says, I don't get it, mom. Don't you want to watch your babies grow? I guess pills are more important. All you have to say is no, but you won't do it, will you? You're going to keep popping till those pills kill you. It took everything inside of me to not scream at your funeral. Sitting in my chair, that person talking was pitiful. I wish you were here, mama, but every time I picture you, all I feel is pain. I hate the way I remember you. He's grieving. He's grieving the loss of his mom and how it happened. And that's, one of the, that's what we're going to be talking about today is grief. What I'm going to keep coming back to over and over again, which was represented by this picture. And this picture is just meant to just be messy, right? It's messy. There's lines and different colors, and they're going every which way. And what we're going to keep saying today is, while our grieving may be all over the place, God is always framing the space. 
God is always framing the space. Our grieving, the feelings of grief, and our grieving may take us all over the place from happiness to sadness to anger. It may make us feel like we're lost, but God is always the one framing the space. He's putting a frame around the space, which means several things. It means that even though it feels like horrible things that are happening to us are random, they're never completely random. And it means that while it doesn't feel like it may be in moments, God is and always will be in control of everything that's happening in our lives and in the world. That God sees that he's guiding the events in world history, the events in our lives, that he potentially is even doing his best work in the midst of our mess. Our feelings, our grieving may be all over the place, but God always frames the space. So to talk about grieving, we have to actually talk about what grieving isn't. So let's talk for a minute about things that grieving is not. Grieving may feel like it, but it's not obsessing or panicking or shaming or self-pity or suppressing or sanitizing. A lot of times we're going through a season of grief or grieving and we think just because we obsess about something or overthink something or we consider shaming ourselves or blaming ourselves for something that happens or we try to suppress and put on a strong front and be able to move forward with our lives, we think that that actually is grieving and oftentimes, most times I would say, that's not actually what grieving is. And so we just need to know what grieving isn't. But here's what we're going to say grief and grieving is. Grief is the emotional suffering we feel when something or someone we love is taken away. Grieving is the process that we engage intentionally to deal with that loss that emotional suffering. So grief is the emotion, oftentimes the intense emotion of sorrow and other things. It takes us all over the place. Grieving is the process that we intentionally engage to deal with that grief. Now I know most of who I'm talking to in this room, and I know that we have experienced loss. I know that in this room there have been losses, significant losses. The loss of a child, the loss of a friend, the loss of a grandparent, the loss of athletics, meaning I hurt my arm and I I couldn't perform in this. I lost an entire season. I lost my job. When I didn't just lose my job, I lost my income. I lost my network. I lost my friends that were connected to that job. I lost the affection of somebody. I lost the affection of somebody that I might actually still be married to. Grief is a deep emotion. It's an umbrella term that covers a wide range of emotions, but definitely deep sorrow. And as Christians, it's one of the ways that we shout out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's wrong. There's something that's wrong with this. Grieving or grief is also validating because it tells us that what we lost was significant to us. It matters It was a really big deal. And again, with this series of emotions, we're not talking about stuffing our emotions, but we're also not talking about bowing to and surrendering to our emotions. And if we can find that way through, that third way through, we can find that grieving can be incredibly healing and transformative. A lot of times we look out at our world and we like to put labels on things and go, you know, 
God's glory resides in the biggest churches. God's glory resides with the best speakers. God's glory resides with the most successful people. And I'm not saying God's glory doesn't do that. But I also want to say that God's glory rests on believers like you and me that are at wit's end, that are at the end of our rope, that are broken and crying out to Jesus and desperate for him. Oftentimes God's glory rests and resides on people in that very situation that are clinging to Jesus. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who grieve, who realize that this is not the way that it's supposed to be, who allow themselves to be wounded by the brokenness of this world and who cry out, no, there's something wrong with this, that realize how much they truly need Jesus. Now, as we grieve, we understand that there's two perspectives to grieving, right? There's a, there's a ground-level perspective in which all of us partake of, where we are here, we're in it. Sometimes it's all that we see. Sometimes we get glimpses, though. With the benefit of time, we back up and we get this, this, this wider or helicopter view of our grieving, and we see why things maybe had to play out in the way that they did. But that view is reserved for the framer of the picture. That's a God thing, right? He's the one that's putting a frame around and guiding everything. And most of the time, the helicopter view is about trusting him. Well, let's look at a picture here just to emphasize what we're saying. This is this, these are the different stages of grief. And what I did on purpose is I put, again, a bunch of lines running everywhere because I don't actually think grieving plays out like this. I don't think it's near that neat and near that clean. I think it's all over the place. And yet there are stages, if we pay attention to it, that we actually progress through. George Bonanno is a clinical psychologist who focuses on trauma. And he says this about the stages of grief. People should expect to fluctuate between moments of sadness and mourning and moments of acceptance or even happiness. People who cope well with loss usually move in and out of these states. It's okay to allow yourself to be distracted and entertained and even to laugh. This is normal and not indicative of whatever negatives the individual associates with it. Understanding whatever one is experiencing is within normal parameters can help facilitate acceptance. And he, one of his big things is acceptance is a huge part of the grieving process. But what are we saying? We're saying that our grieving may be all over the place. But God is always framing the space. Always. Don't ever forget that. God is always in control. Nothing that happens to us is a sheer act of random chance and chaos. God is always framing the space. He is always guiding and directing. He sees you in the midst of your grief. I want to invite you into Psalm 88. It's one of the deepest and darkest of all of the psalms, and it's created by the director of music. And we, we look at this with the title of Psalm 88. This is in most of your Bibles. And it's also the story of Heman, a little bit, is in First Chronicles 6. And I put those two together just to kind of frame what we're talking about. It says, these are the men David, King David, put in charge of the music in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest there. From the Kohathites, Heman the musician. 
Heman was the musical director, at least for a season, in Israel. And then the title of the psalm, 88, is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music, a mascal, a song of Heman. So there's this character, Heman, who's the director of music, and we don't know very much about him, but we know that he was put in charge of directing music for the Israelites. He was a musician put in charge of this, and he was the author of one of the deepest, darkest psalms. Maybe Heman had seen a lot of brokenness. Maybe Heman was very familiar with grief and grieving, and maybe that's why David put him in charge of crafting some of these psalms. Maybe that's why he was worthy. We know that throughout history, God has turned Heman into a timeless artist that has impacted millions because Psalm 88, among others, made it into our Bibles. We know that the Psalms, and the 150 of them, at least 65 of them, well over a third, are laments expressing deep sadness and sorrow. And God, where are you? With the intent of drawing close to God during great pain and trials. It's a gift. And you'll notice as you read through these laments, as we look at Psalm 88, that it's healthy to express emotions. It's a good thing. Again, this this song is dark, and it's about deep grieving and emotions, and yet we're going to find, I think, it's oddly hopeful. Now, suffering happens for a variety of reasons. As we look at Scripture, sometimes suffering happens because God is trying to course-correct us, Sometimes suffering happens because God is trying to keep or prevent something worse from happening to us. And then other times, suffering is just random. It just, it just seems, to be, it seems to be random. God's in control, of course, but it just doesn't seem connected to any one particular thing. And yet, I do think it's always an occasion to love God deeper and purer. So let's look at Psalm 88, starting in verses 3 through 5. This is, this is Heman's creation the director of music. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead like like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more who are cut off from your care. And I just want to pause here because while you may, may not be experiencing all of this right now, I want you to try to connect to this what, what Heman is writing, because I think it's representative of trials and tribulations, of seasons that we go through. Are you there right now? Are you currently struggling with any of this right now? Do you remember a season where you were struggling and you would say, yes, those words on the wall, at least some of them match exactly how I felt at the time or how I'm feeling. And maybe I just didn't feel like it was okay to express it this way. But absolutely, I felt like that. I feel like that now. Verses 6 through 9. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Even my friends have turned away from me. Even my close friends 
God, you've turned away from me too, and you turned away from me a long time ago. At least it feels that way. You have abandoned me even worse than that. I feel your wrath. You haven't just turned away from me. Maybe you've turned toward me out of spite or anger, and I just feel like I'm on the verge of death. My energy has been zapped. That's what happens when we go through seasons like that. This is a song, remember. Maybe it is very much representative of of Heman's experience, his present tense experience, his past tense experience. We're not sure. It's a song. So there's a little bit of hyperbole in this song. It would be like us saying, you know, Ben, I've been struggling with this loss, and I've just been crying my eyes out. Night after night after night. I cry myself to sleep. Now, in this, in this psalm, there's not a mention of sin. In other psalms, we recognize the connection like the psalmist, like David, sinned, and that's why he's experiencing suffering and pain. But there's not a mention of that here. And I think that we have to set an appropriate expectation that we need to expect messy in this life, that we need to expect tears and hurt and pain, and it's actually more dangerous if we don't. But the good news is, we serve a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. Jesus, right? We know that. But if we don't expect tears, then we will be more shallow people and then we will will kind of of go towards self-pity. And that makes us shallow and it doesn't make us very strong or pliable or attractive. We'll say it this way. We can't count on God to arrange what happens in our lives to make sure we feel good. He might do that. But we can count on God to patiently remove the obstacles that are in the way of enjoying Him. Remove the obstacles to our enjoyment of Him. Now, if we're being honest, as Westerners, 21st century Americans, we don't really have a very strong and solid category for suffering. We just don't. We don't like it. No sooner than we start to suffer, we want to put it away, and we're, we're going into self-soothing. And I'm not even blaming any of us. I'm not saying that's a terrible thing. But we take it all the way to the end, and we just need to try to avoid pain at all costs. If we feel bad, we just try to feel good. We try to be comforted instantly. If we're being honest, we, we would all have to admit that most of us have a comfort idol, And then we attach God to it, and it's like, okay, God, it's your job to make my life work. If I feel bad, it's your job to make me feel better. It's your job to to protect me from feeling bad. And if we're honest, then God becomes a means to an end, right? Where our end isn't really God and glorifying Him and enjoying Him. Our end is something else. Our end is feeling better. Our end is just to feel comfort, Our end is success or approval or whatever it is, but then God, if we're not careful, can become a means to an end. And here's the point. God's not there just to rubber stamp whatever it is that we're involved in, whatever it is that we want to accomplish. God's not there just to rubber stamp whatever I put my mind to. Okay, God, career, this direction, and yes, I want the rubber stamp now. I want the seal of approval. I want the protection to make sure that all of that happens. God's not there to rubber stamp my relationship or any endeavors that I might might aim for. If I stay in that place, my capacity for feeling is small. The truth is, no matter how good my circumstances for a season, they never last. No matter how good the season of life that I go through, 
it can't ultimately deliver. This broken world can't ultimately deliver on everything that I long for and everything my heart desires. And as Christians, we can be really righteous people and obedient, and yet we can go through really difficult seasons where things are bad and things don't get better. In fact, sometimes we could argue that things get worse because we're Christians. See Jesus when he's on earth. And he literally says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now he also says, fear not, for I have overcome the world, right? But in this world, you will have trouble and lots of it. And so what is God really interested in? He's really interested in a relationship with us. He's interested in intimacy with us. He's interested in something greater like our joy. And yet, because we have this urge every time we feel bad to feel good, we have this comfort idol. It actually is an obstacle to having faith and developing faith in God. It can become an obstacle to healing. And this is why grieving is a good antidote to that. Because grieving recognizes this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But, but I'm allowing myself to feel. I'm expressing my emotions. I'm inviting God into that space. I'm not just trying to get rid of it. Remember, Jesus invites us right here and now into the life which is truly life. He doesn't just want us to feel better. He doesn't just want our lives to be easier. He wants to give us joy. And Pastor Nate is going to finish the series and talk about that next week. So again, our grieving, our lives may be all over the place. All over the place. They may be really messy. We may be going through an intense season of grieving in which we are happy and then we are sad and then we are angry. It may be all over the place, but God is always framing this space. Don't ever doubt it. He's always framing the space. He's always in control whether we feel it or not. He can always see you. He always cares about you. He never takes a break. He does his best work in the middle of the mess, in the eye of the storm. We have to remember that. Verses 10 through 12. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? I can really connect to this because I think he's getting sarcastic, right? And that's one of my, one of my greatest qualities is sarcasm, if you didn't know. So I, I can connect to this. Now, as an ancient Israelite, they would, have, they would have had an undeveloped understanding of the afterlife. Yes, most of them thought that, you know, the righteous went to be with God and the unrighteous went to not be with God. A lot of times they just talk about Sheol, this place of the dead, or Hades. It was underdeveloped. But what I really think is happening is he's getting sarcastic and he's saying, I want to praise you. I want to declare your love. And you got me going through this. I'm on the brink of death. I feel your wrath. This doesn't make any sense. I'm here. I want to worship you. I want to praise you. I want to declare you to the nations. I want to be able to tell your story. This doesn't make any sense at all. I think this is like an interrogation, and I think it's strong, and I think you can hear Heman writing the song saying, Answer me. 
you've never really been there for me. Or if you have, it's been a really, really long time. I don't want to die this way. I don't want to die felt, having felt distance from you and having felt your wrath for so long. And yet, we have Psalm 88 that's been preserved in our Bibles. God has rubber-stamped that. God's put Psalm 88 in Scripture. It's almost as if God is saying, yes, that's exactly what I want. I want you to cry out to me. Children of Israel, people that follow me and worship me, this is what I want. It's almost like God is encouraging this. He's inviting it. We get a sense of his grace that way. He definitely understands. Because if he didn't understand, we wouldn't have psalms like Psalm 88 in our Bibles at all. Our Bibles would be sanitized. You can say a lot about the Bible, but it is not sanitized. It is heavy. It is honest. It is brutally honest in places. That's one of the things I love about it, to be honest. So again, I'm emoting. I'm emoting, but I'm doing so recognizing that God has a frame around it, whether I can feel it or not. My feelings may be all over the the place. My faith can go from strong to weak in a matter of moments. I can be exposed and realize, well, I wasn't as far along as I thought that I was. But you know who doesn't change while I'm changing? The framer. The framer doesn't change. The one who we are crying out to, the one who I'm praying to, doesn't change. My feelings and my faith is all over the map. And yet he stays the same. He doesn't change. The object of my faith matters more than the amount of faith that I have. Verses 13 through 15. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. By the way, if you're looking for this to turn, it's not gonna. So, spoiler alert. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? For my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your tears and am in despair. This is happening for a long, long time. From my youth I've suffered. The only thing I can be equivalent to that I can think of is I've always struggled with depression since I, was, since I can remember. And I've, and I've struggled with back pain since I was an adolescent. From my youth... I've had these things that have happened. This has been going on a long time. And yet, this psalmist, Heman, who's writing this song, is crying out to God, and he's teaching the Israelite community, this is how you do it. You craft this, you're honest, you express it, but you do it to God. You do it to God. This is how it's done. Makes me think of, the story of Job, and we don't have a lot of time to get into it, but basically Satan shows up and Satan and God are having a conversation. And that's really, I find that to be really strange, right? A lot of Job is really strange, but basically Satan is like, Satan says, Job represents the best of humanity. So God, um, people only worship you because of the things that you give them, because you bless them. Take away the blessings and then Job and everybody else will stop worshiping you. Don't hold me to, this is going to sound terrible, but just stay with me. Satan was partly right. Yes, Ben Taylor, mark it down, August 27th, Ben said Satan was partly right. Satan was partly right about us. 
We do have that sin nature. We do have that, give me, give me, give me, and if you're not giving me what I want, then I'm just going to turn away from you. He was partly right, and yet God vindicates Job because while Job had almost everything taken from him, he stayed with God when he was getting nothing out of it. He was treating God as God, and I can't help but wonder if maybe in our mess... And in our grieving, that's one of the awesome, powerful, redemptive things that can come out of it. Is if I stay praying to God, regardless of my circumstances, I wonder if something deeper, if something more powerful, if a deeper root is able to take in those moments. I wonder if dependence on other things starts to shrink, and I wonder if dependence on God grows. We'll say it this way. Grieving is one of the main ways that God enlarges our soul and transforms us into greater lovers of himself and others. It's one of God's greatest tools to enlarge our soul, to transform us. There are non-Christians that get some of this like Jonathan Haidt, who is an author and a psychologist, and he talks about this term, post-traumatic growth. You've heard post-traumatic stress? Well, he talks about post-traumatic growth, and he examines people that have lost some of the most significant attachments, spouse, child, parent, you name it. And he says if you stay with it long enough, there's this post-traumatic growth that can happen out of the chaos where it reveals hidden abilities, improves relationships, and it deepens, and it, and, it, and it clarifies priorities. And this is from a non-Christian. So imagine what we have available as Christians. As Christians, we cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not right. This is brokenness. This is loss. It's painful. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And when we cry out, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Hopefully, we're drawn to the one who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. Stay with me here. Romans 5, among many other places, talks about how we glory in our suffering. No, we don't. We're Americans. We don't glory in suffering. I don't know who you're talking to. Paul says we glory in our suffering because it produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good. And it sounds pretty important. It forces us to grab a hold of a stronger branch because the branch that we were grabbing a hold of is breaking. We have this tendency to say, I'm going through this and I'm never going to be the same. And the truth is, you aren't ever going to be the same. But it doesn't mean you're never going to be good again. It doesn't mean that you're never going to be okay again. So we have to to be careful. Because if we can do this, if we can figure out how to grieve in this way, then it can make us stronger and it can make us people of endurance, more pliable, more attractive, especially as Christians, having something to really offer to the world. And I can't help but think that grieving our intense losses is one of the only ways that God does this kind of soul-enlarging work, this kind of heart surgery on us. Larry Crabb was one of Nate's favorite authors. He's a great author. Um, he wrote, this, he wrote um, a prayer to his granddaughter, 
in the book Shattered Dreams, and I highly recommend Shattered Dreams. It's a hard read, but it is a really, really redemptive read. But here's his prayer, and as I read this from him about his granddaughter, his young granddaughter, you tell me if you have the guts to pray something like this. May this beautiful young woman, still my treasured little granddaughter, discover that place in her heart where she desires you above everything else. May she discover that place in her heart that only love flowing from yours can fill. Please, Lord, shield her from every useless trial. Protect her from pointless pain. But allow whatever dreams to shatter that will release her heart to meet yours that will empower her to rest in your ecstatic love, no matter how empty and desperate she may feel. Reveal the beauty of your life to her and through her, whatever it takes, but please be gentle. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if I have the guts to pray that for myself, for you. I want to. It'd be a little easier for me to try it on you, right? Like, God, please pray for Larry. Allow some pain, but not the biggest pain, and protect him, but, you know, hurt him as much as you need to, right? I can say that to Larry. I can take that chance with him, but how many of us really have the guts to pray that prayer? That's powerful. Verses 16 to 18. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me all day long. They surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me my friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. God, darkness is a better friend than you. Do you know in Hebrew, if you read, if you read it in Hebrew, first of all, you're reading it right to left, and that's just so weird to us, right? But second of all, darkness in Hebrew is the last word of the psalm. It's literally where it ends with the word darkness. You know what happened centuries later? Darkness came over the land. Read Matthew 27 with me. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. I've practiced this one. Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking from what we know as Psalm 22, where the psalmist was feeling forsaken and abandoned by God. And in this moment, Jesus was feeling forsaken and abandoned by God. You see, Jesus experienced ultimate darkness, and cosmic rejection so that we know if we have faith in Christ, we don't ever have to experience that. We may feel like we're experiencing that, but if we are in Christ, we can know that that's not true. Do you understand that the framer of this picture, the framer of our story, the author of our story, dove headfirst into our mess, the author of the story, of his story, of our broken world, wrote himself into his own story and dove headfirst into the middle of our mess. You think Jesus is going to abandon you now? After he's done all that? Lived, died, buried, rose again, right hand of the Father, and you think Jesus is going to give up on you and me now? It feels that way sometimes. But that's the point of the gospel, is we can know that it's not true. Heman, this is permanent. It's hopeless. And God took that bigger view, and he turned him into a timeless artist. Heman, do, do dead people ever rise to praise you? Yeah, they do. 
the dead in Christ rise to praise. Absolutely. Heman couldn't see it and feel it at the time. But that doesn't make it untrue. And remember, Psalm 88 was just one of the psalms and the anthem of all of the songs that the Israelites and we have been given. At Jesus' crucifixion, the question by his closest followers was asked, how can God do this? How can God take the most special person that's ever walked the face of the earth and allow this to happen? Their faith was shattered. Their lives was shattered, and yet they couldn't see it at the time. But if they could, they would have been also seeing the most brilliant thing that God has ever, ever done, making a way for sinners to be reconciled with God. He was doing that on the cross, and they couldn't see it because they didn't have the helicopter view And that's why we have to trust. That's why I'm asking you if you would consider take your tears, take your mess, plant your tears in Jesus. Plant them in Jesus. You're never going to be sorry that you did. He'll change you. He might not change your circumstances. He will change you. He will will make you the most joy-filled person there is. We'll say it this way. If we have faith in Jesus, we can grieve with the hope that God is with us in our grief. He won't waste the loss that caused our grief. And he will not leave us in our grief. Seven years after NF wrote the album Therapy Sessions that he wrote that very dark and anger-filled song about his mom, He wrote, this year, he wrote an album called Hope. And I highly encourage it. It is incredibly, it's full of brokenness, but it is full of redemption and hope. Let's just take an excerpt from this um, song about his mom. This one's called Mama. Look at the difference from the beginning, seven years ago that I showed you till now. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, I guess we all fall short. And I can't hold this unforgiveness in my heart anymore. So just know you're lovable to me, and of course you'll always be mama to us, so save a table for four. Yeah, I'm grown now. It took me a while to see the bigger picture, because if you were here today and I was talking with you, there'd be a lot of tears of joy falling on my sweatshirt, probably followed by some apologies, and mom, I missed you. You see where grieving got him? It took a while. It took him seven years. But in his grieving... I believe God met him in that space. I believe God did. I, I haven't talked to him, but, and I haven't heard his testimony this way, but I believe God has done some of his best work in his life through all of that because our grieving is all over the place. But God is the one that frames the space. God's always framing the space. We can never forget that. I want to end with this. Stay with me for a couple more minutes because I want to, I want to show you an example of how this works, how to do gospel-centered grieving. This is my best shot. I'm trying to make this as practical as possible. Take from this what you will. But if the question is, how do I do gospel-centered grieving, this is my attempt. And I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to recognize that we're grieving and accept that we're in a space of grieving and perhaps even intense grieving. I'm hurting. I'm grieving. It's normal. I'm validated because I lost something or someone very close to me. I'll be okay, even if I feel intense emotions. Don't fight. Don't fight the feelings. 
recognize and accept them, and then examine. Do a little bit of work of examination. Get in there. Look at the good and the bad. I lost somebody that was close that, that I was close to, and and I and I love them so much, and they love me, and they were such a big part of why I am the way that I am. And it hurts so bad, and the loss is so real. And so we're doing some examination, and we're seeing how in grieving our grief is being manifested as we go. And then we're putting Jesus on the scene. So this is about taking the space where you first heard the bad news at your kitchen table or in your car or the place where you wept the loudest and inviting Jesus into that space, putting him on the scene. What is he doing? Is he weeping with you? I think so. Are his arms around you? Is he clinging tight to you as his tears are falling on your shirt? I think quite possibly putting Jesus on the scene and then talking to him screaming to him, yelling at him, whispering to him, not saying a word, just being with him, talking to him, declaring the ultimate hope that God won't waste this pain. He's with me in my pain and he will not leave me in this pain. And then at the end, you're separating from it, which means if you're journaling for 20 to 25 minutes, you're shutting the journal and you're moving on with your day because feelings are messengers. They're not the message. And when we're grieving, what we say to our feelings is, I'm ultimately in control. God is in control of my story, but I'm in control of my feelings. You don't control me. I control you. So I'm shutting the journal. I'm going to come back to it maybe next week for 20 to 25 minutes. And your brain starts to reset and be rewired and you start to heal. And even though the, the waves of grief may hit you, another wave may come when you didn't expect it. The waves start to get lesser and lesser. You're able to handle it. Even if you're out somewhere and you get triggered because you remember the smell or a person that looks like the person that you lost, it's okay because God's healing you. It's an occasion to remember that while your grieving may be all over the place, God is the one framing the space. God took a headfirst dive into the middle of your mess. God is with you. He will never leave you. He will do his best work in those moments. And as you begin to realize that, you start to be able to tell your story of pain and retell it without reliving it in that intense emotional way. And that's when you know healing is underway.